What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank Holland, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Deficits and oil are animating the bond market. The bond market is animating the stock market. And it's not just happening here. It's happening globally. And our market guest is all over the map, literally, with where to find the biggest returns against this backdrop. Plus, another strike looms in another major part of the economy. This one in healthcare, and it could be massive. 75,000 frontline workers could walk off the job come Wednesday. We have the union rep here live with where things stand, and we'll look at stocks in the sector that could be impacted the most. Plus, demand destruction. That's how one private credit company calls the current lending environment. The CEO joins us ahead with what he's seeing now and what he expects from here. Let's start with the markets, though, and Dom Chu here with our numbers. Some green, Dom. They are so, there is some green out there, Kelly, and it's a reversal because we did see modest red at one point earlier on in the session. If you look at the Dow Industrials right now up about one half of 1%, 127 points to the upside, 33,679. The S&P is now above the 4,300 mark, up about 30 points, three quarters of 1% gain. And just to kind of put those moves in context, we were up about 43 points at the highs of the session, actually down 10 points at the lows. So there is your trading range so far, tilting towards the higher end of things. And the Nasdaq really outpacing the the whole market as it's just up about a percent right now, 140 points, 13,232 the last trade. One other place to keep a close eye on is what's happening with the oil market. What you are seeing right now is U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate WTI crude prices are actually in the red, down by about 1.5%, $92.34. But at one point today, on an intraday basis, we did hit the highest levels going all the way back to August of 2022. So keep an eye on those oil prices. Now, again, lower for the day, but did hit and the highest level since August of last year at one point. And then the stock of the day, the worst performer in the S&P 500, CarMax, used car retailer, down nearly 10% right now. The earnings report was actually kind of mixed. Profits came in line. Revenues were actually slightly better than some estimates out there, but they did show slowing signs of demand for the used car market overall amid interest rates going higher and that dynamic in cars changing a little bit now. So CarMax shares the move of the day down about nine and a half percent. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. I'll see you soon, Dom. Thank you very much, Dom Chu. And it's another day, another move higher in long-term bond yields. The 10-year making moves towards 4.7 percent. The 20-year touched 5 percent earlier. And just wait till you see what's going on overseas. Steve Leisman is tracking the action for us and has a look at what it all means for the Fed from here, Steve. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, you know, stocks are getting a little reprieve from a nudge down in yields today, but the trend towards higher yields and the challenge for stocks that it presents is pretty clear. Since early July, yields are up from 375 to near 460, and now the yields are close to five, closer to five than to four. Investors have to think hard about what that means for valuations in the stock market. 
Bruno Brazina, rate strategist at Bank of America, says the 10-year could hit five if you have the continued hawkish Fed. Remember, they took away cuts next year and, by extension, extended quantitative tightening. You've got the U.S. debt, debt downgrade, somewhat better economic fundamentals, a higher neutral rate, and a lot more supply than anticipated by market. It is that supply looks to be driving rates now. In fact, this upward move in yields is curious. If it comes with, it, because much of the increases come with repricing of inflation expectations or without that repricing, so the move is in real yields and term premium. So long as we're in this world of higher structural deficits, Kelly, and with central banks selling in hedge funds, they're wary of losses on the long end. Those yields around these levels could be around to stay. And a Fed that wants tighter financial conditions, don't look to them for any help. They cannot be expected to do much to keep a cap on rates, at least at these levels, Kelly. Steve, not to put you on the spot, but you've had the privilege of being at DA so far all morning long. And I know rates in the economy, this has been kind of a theme. What jumps out to you? Do people on net still, do they see these Treasury yields as a buying opportunity or as a warning point that, you know, may yet drive higher? I think there's two kinds of people. Some, some are thinking about it and some are sort of hyper obsessed with it. <laughs> rates keep coming up, but I'm not sure that it's internalized, uh, Kelly, this idea of thinking about what's the volatility in the bond market versus the volatility in the stock market. Where are we in terms of what kind of paradigm are we are we living in? Is, there, is this a shift here? We're going back to a pre-2008 world where there's higher bond volatility and that demands higher yields and also a higher yield environment. Or can we click our heels, Kelly, and go back to the Kansas of 1% or 2% yields? I don't think that's happening. This idea of a higher neutral rate is one that we've discussed on this show. That embeds itself in the baseline or the bottom of the yield world. And I think the idea of, hey, we don't know what yields are going to be. But if you're thinking about a risk-reward ratio, cost-benefit of whatever stock you're purchasing or your portfolio, you better start plugging in those numbers. Yeah, I saw Ray Dalio making some uh, allusions to those concerns as well, supply-demand issues. Well, we, we obsess, that is for sure. Steve, stay with us uh, for just a moment. I want to mention some of the key data today as well. Was this driving bond yields? Let's try to unpack it. The labor market's still hot, although economic activity falling. Jobless claims rose less than expected. That's a good thing. They were strong. Second quarter GDP was weaker, though. Pending home sales sliding more than 7% in August, their biggest drop since last year, and the Kansas City Regional Fed survey declining in September. My next guest says it could all spell trouble for the Fed. Let's bring in Aditya Bave, senior economist at Bank of America Securities. Aditya, welcome. What kind of trouble? Good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Kelly. So basically, our base case is that the Fed does another 25 basis point hike in November, but the risks are growing that they won't be able to do that. And there's a couple of ways that could play out. One is if there's a potential government shutdown, they just might not have the data for September in time for the November meeting, in which case we think they'll basically punt on a hike in November. The other possibility is that economic activity could slow meaningfully in the early part of Q4. There's a bunch of risks that are potentially building up. The UAW strike would be the biggest of those, but we could have a government shutdown as well. And there's sticky energy prices and student loan repayments. So if you get a perfect storm of all of that and you're tracking closer to 0% GDP growth for the fourth quarter, the Fed will probably decide not to do that last hike in November. Absolutely. And Steve, there's another risk as well. If we don't get the data, I thought Torsten Slock summarized it well from Apollo yeah. this morning. He said the real risk to the economy and to financial stability is if weak economic data is not met with falling long term interest rates, right? Obviously, like what's happening in Germany right now. But the problem is, if we don't get the data, we're not going to know what that reaction function looks like. I think that's a, a definite risk and a definite possibility. 
uh, Kelly. We'll see how much, uh, how long the government shutdown lasts. But, you know, Kelly, I made sort of a little bit of a career of telling people that issuance doesn't matter because it really hasn't. The markets have been able to, this global market is able to take down the issuance from the Treasury. I don't think that's any longer the case. And I think the, the, the point you're making, something that Ray Dalio maybe was talking about, is you could have these high yields among flagging economic growth. And the question becomes whether or not the Treasury gets a better hold on what's happening in the market, starts to understand that all of this issuance, the president needs to understand this, the Congress needs to understand this, that you are going to keep paying unless you start to give some visibility to an end to this issuance to the Treasury market. Exactly. And uh, Aditya, over at MKM this morning, Michael Darda was basically saying he thinks the coming downturn will trump the deficits. In other words, he'd be a buyer of bond yields at these levels because he just thinks the weakness that we're heading into, like it always does, will end up driving yields lower. Right. So as our rate strategist said, there is risks or there are risks around the deficit, which could drive yields higher. However, if the economy does slow down, I guess one silver lining is that we'll worry less about higher structural rates, higher neutral rates, because then we'll have evidence that higher Fed rates did impact the economy eventually. And that should help bring yields down to a certain degree. Although I know that you guys... Aditya, I, I disagree ahead, a little yeah. bit on that. Just a little bit. I mean... I think the problem with the next downturn, which hasn't happened yet, and maybe we forestall it, but how much ammunition does the Fed and does the Treasury, how much will they have to combat a downturn? I think we might be a little bit, you know, you're kind of on your own on this one in that, yes, there'll be some rate cuts on the short end, um, but also I don't think you can look for massive fiscal uh, stimulus or assistance in the event of another downturn, assuming it's shallow. Absolutely agree on the fiscal side. The Fed probably has some ammunition to cut. How much ammunition they have will depend on how their views around neutral rates evolve. But on the fiscal side, there is a serious concern there. I agree with you 100% that if there is a downturn, there's probably not a lot of room for stimulus. Adia, the, fortunately, you guys have been in the no downturn camp lately. Um, any of the, yeah. of the recent data or the fact that the fourth quarter looks like it could be a slump, is that uh, lending you towards revising that view lower once again? Yeah, it is a point of concern. A lot of the headwinds for the fourth quarter still look likely to be temporary, so I'm less concerned about that. That looks like a soft patch, not the start of a recession. But if you look at the second quarter revisions, consumer spending revised down from 1.7% to 0.8% growth. That's concerning, and particularly the, the revisions were large in services, so housing, transportation, recreation services, uh, those were revised down meaningfully. So that's something to watch for. Does the consumer have less momentum than we previously thought? Absolutely. Last word, Steve? I, yeah, I have a quick question for Aditya, real quickly, Aditya. Um, because that revision down in the second quarter, does that mean the retail spending numbers are going to be revised down? And does that mean the third quarter numbers, which are sky high right now, are actually a bit lower if that jumping off point for the second quarter was indeed lower? Retail sales were already revised down for June and July, so that's what we will expect to see reflected in the consumer spending numbers for August tomorrow. But these revisions for, for the second quarter won't affect retail sales. All right. 
but we do know uh, they leave us on a bit of a weaker trajectory for the consumer than previously thought. Inflation eating up more of that spending than we realized. Gentlemen, thank you both today. We appreciate it. Aditya Bave and Steve Leisman joining us from Delivering Alpha. As bond yields rise, my next guest warns that the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries may no longer be the risk-free assets they once were, and that poses a risk to the sovereign health of the U.S. He's hedging that risk with gold and with several international holdings. Joining me now is Matthew McLennan, portfolio manager of the First Eagle Global Value Fund. Five Star Fund's top holdings include Oracle, Meta, Schlumberger, Exxon, oh, and our parent company, Comcast. Matthew, welcome. Thank you very much, Kelly. Good to see you. Let me start with your top-level concerns here. I mean, let me put it this way. If, if I didn't come to you obsessing about it, would you come to me? You know, I, one of the things that concerns me is the complacency that was in markets until recently. I mean, we really have had no economic landing. If you look at total payrolls relative to the total population, it's at a generational peak, and it's still outgrowing population growth. And I think one of the reasons we had this window of apparent resilience in the U.S. economy is that while the Fed was raising interest rates uh, by 500 basis points plus, we also had a roughly 500 basis point expansion in the fiscal deficit from the summer of last year to the summer of this year. And so it's very unusual to see this kind of fiscal laxity at the peak of the economic cycle. And um, this is a real thing that markets are going to have to digest in the coming year or two, because we're already sitting at an 8 percent or so deficit. If we don't get a recession and the, and, the, and the government has to roll its debt at the current higher level of interest rates, we could see double digit deficits. Yes. If we do get a recession, we could see double digit deficits. So yes. we have a fiscal problem right now. You're, no, you're exactly right. If we don't get a recession and, and rates stay here, we could see, you know, wide deficits. And if we do get a recession, we'll forget it. I mean, that's traditionally been the way that the deficit blows out. Steve Leisman last segment was suggesting and what happens if the Fed and, and the you know, policymakers can't then come to the economy's rescue, although I tend to think the Fed will have no choice uh, but to kind of restart that QE. Well, you know, that's that's the dilemma the Fed faces, because in its efforts to quelch inflation at this point in time, uh, they're risking a, um, a sovereign uh, financial uh, you know, viability issue here. And and so the Fed is, is facing uh, financial stability considerations if we get into the kind of trouble that you're uh, suggesting. And they're going to be caught in a difficult corner between re-expanding monetary policy uh, or keeping rates tight. And I think if they do uh, re-enter QE at some point and we have these large deficits and the whole interest rate um, carry story of the dollar comes into question, this will pose a real risk uh, to the dollar uh, in financial markets. And I think this kind of risk uh, it's not really being very well priced in equity markets at the moment. In fact, I, I, I can't remember many times in the last 40 years where you've seen this kind of move in rates uh, and equity markets holding up. Uh, we saw it in 1987, didn't end well. We saw it in 1999, it didn't hmm. end well. Uh, and so I think there's there's some risk here in markets. So it, 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 it's so funny to hear you say all this and go, yes, but I'm buying blue chip companies because a lot of people, that this is when they break out the tinfoil hats and, and the gold bars. Although, you know, gold is, I, I'm just looking back over the past year, you know, year to date, gold is actually down as real rates have risen. Over the past year, it's up 8%. Do you think this is a, deserves a place in people's portfolios now? Yeah, so, so let me just sort of say in, in terms of why we own some blue chip stocks still, uh, setting aside gold for a second, um, we acknowledge that the crystal ball is foggy at best. Uh, you know, I've shared with you my concerns, um, the fact that valuations could come under pressure here, and we are indeed seeing a decline in, in uh, market breadth here. 
but we don't know what the future holds for certain. Uh, and that's why we do hold gold as a potential hedge. And I think while gold is modestly off this year, it's really held up extremely well relative to the carnage that we've seen at the long end of the Treasury bond market. True. And so when you think about the potential hedge assets, uh, gold is held in there very well. And I think Often we see uh, in the later stage of a tightening cycle when liquidity conditions are tight, and as you pointed out, real rates are under upward pressure, the gold softens a little at the margin. But the question is, what happens next? When these higher real interest rates bite, when the economy rolls over, if it does, uh, then gold uh, will have its best days ahead. And, and the other thing I would just mention is that when you look at the worst decades for stock over the last centuries, um, that they've often been the best decades uh, for, for gold, whether it was the 30s, the 70s, or the period around the global financial crisis. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's almost like you're holding stocks as a hedge against the world not blowing up, which you know <laughs> has been a pretty successful strategy for the last you know 90 years or so. Let me just quickly ask you because this relates back to the dollar, and that's one piece I'm trying to wrap my head around. You own some international stocks. Obviously, if the dollar stays strong, that would be a headwind. It would make sense to me for the dollar to stay strong, I guess, unless the flight out of treasuries really undermines that. Why do you think the dollar is going to weaken from here? Well, the, the risk to the dollar is that if there's a, a moment in time uh, where market participants start to feel that the fiscal situation is intractable, and, and let's face it, what political will is there to embark on a fiscal tightening uh, in an election year? And what bipartisan spirit do we have to embark upon a decade program of fiscal rectitude? I just don't see it. And if the markets at some point start to focus on the intractability of the fiscal situation, that could lead to challenges where you see more risk premium in bond markets and also when you see currency weakness at the same time. Think of what happened to Liz Truss in the UK um, last yes. summer. And, and so those are risks that the, uh, the US could face. We saw it in the 1970s. Uh, these are not new risks, but the stock of government debt to GDP is very high today. The budget deficit is very high for the peak of the cycle. Really, it's a, a generational high. We haven't seen these kinds of uh, deficits at the peak of the cycle since World War II. So th this all makes, makes quite a, a bit of sense to me. And, and I guess the, the final question would be, it, can we just kind of keep all of these risks in the background, right? I, I can hear a lot of veteran stock pickers saying, well, you know, <laughs> we've been through rough times before and we always figure it out. And, um, you know, even those who argue that you should be buying bond yields here because at some point we are going, you know, the cycle is going to turn. And maybe that's what solves this is if bond yields come back into, uh, you know, the, the U.S. 10-year, for instance, something more like the 3% range. Well, if the cycle turns down, it's not going to help the fiscal situation. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the key risk that we're focused on at the moment. But I do acknowledge your point that um, there's been a lot of macro prognostication from a lot of people over many years. And, uh, and that's why we continue to be an owner of businesses that have some kind of incumbency advantage, that cash flow machines, that trade at sensible prices. And I think having a diversified portfolio of um, resilient businesses bottom up is one antidote uh, to having these kind of top down concerns. And so we look at it from a portfolio standpoint. We do have gold as a potential hedge against these kind of fiscal and currency concerns. Uh, on the flip side, uh, we own securities uh, that we're willing to own for the next decade um, that are um, very cash flow generative. Yeah, no, it's like a revenge of the old economy thing. If I if I may quote Curry, you know, you've got Oracle, I mean, may, maybe Meta, uh, you know, HCA, Unilever, British American Tobacco, Philip Morris, uh, for a sense of where you're looking. Matthew, great discussion today. Thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it.
Thanks so much, Kelly. Enjoyed it. Matt McLennan with First Eagle. Want to mention a quick market flash on Uber and DoorDash. A New York state judge just rejected a bid from gig economy firms to temporarily block their novel law setting a minimum wage for delivery workers. Both Uber and Dash are still hired today, although Dash shares in particular are pairing their gains somewhat on that news. Coming up, the writer's strike may be over, but there's another one on the horizon, this time in the healthcare space. Up next, we'll speak with a union director representing nearly 100,000 frontline healthcare workers about those negotiations, and we'll get an analyst take on the stocks most exposed to the strike. Plus, private credit has been booming, but our guess says the Fed's rate hikes have led to demand destruction, with borrowers hesitating to pay higher rates. And now he warns we'll see a wave of defaults across the space. We're live and delivering Alpha to hear from him later in the show. And as we head to break, here's a look at the broad markets. The Dow hanging on to 114-point gain. Both the Nasdaq and Russell up 1% today, rebounding from recent declines. The 10-year yield has backed off its highs and is just below 462. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to the exchange from the writer's strike in Hollywood to the auto worker strike in Detroit. Labor unions across America are fighting for better pay and job conditions. But just as Hollywood wraps up its near 150-day work stoppage, a health care strike is on the horizon. Nearly 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers are expected to walk out on October 4th if an agreement to resolve a staffing crisis is not reached by the end of this week. The stoppage would be the largest health care strike in U.S. history and could cause a major disruption to the broader ecosystem. For more on what to expect, we're joined by Caroline Lucas, executive director of the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions. And for the impact on stocks, Mizuho's healthcare sector specialist, Jared Holtz, joins us as well. Welcome to you both. Caroline, we'll start with you. Tell us about the staffing crisis you're experiencing. Thank you so much, Kelly. I just want to say that we have been raising the alarm as frontline healthcare workers about the staffing crisis now for years. We are really concerned about the impact to not just worker safety, but also patient care of continually working short. And Kaiser executives are not showing up with the urgency needed to address this short staffing crisis. So as I read here, patients are seeing, and these are, I assume, mostly hospital patients, wait times for appointments, medication, x-rays, phone responses, room assignments are intolerable and in some cases at dangerous levels. Kaiser wants to raise premiums by 15% while providing less care. Do I sort of have that right as you guys see it? 
Kelly, you nailed it. We are really concerned about a healthcare system that is showing up in a way that undermines the staffing levels needed to deliver the safe patient care that you and I as consumers count on. By the way, 75,000 workers out of 85,000 may may walk out. Is that because those 10,000 are, are critical? What, it's one thing where we're talking. I'm not saying the auto workers aren't essential, but, you know, nurses and it, that's a whole other level. You know, absolutely. Every single one of our healthcare workers wants to be bedside with their patients. That's what they signed up for. That's what they worked on throughout the pandemic. That's where they want to be today, tomorrow, and next Wednesday. But tens of thousands of healthcare workers, frontline healthcare providers, feel like they can no longer show up in good faith if we are not having the staffing levels needed to provide the care that we count on. So do you think a strike is going to happen uh, if it's never happened before? What what do you think the reaction by patients and, and so much else is going to be? And what are the sticking points? I mean, in the, in the UAW strike, it all seems to come down to wage negotiations. Is that the case here? Staffing, staffing, staffing are the sticking points. And what we want is simple. We want Kaiser executives to bargain in good faith with frontline healthcare workers. We want Kaiser executives to solve the Kaiser short staffing problem. And we want patients to be safe and get the best possible care when they come to Kaiser facilities. So you want a lot more nurses. Do you, are you even asking for a pay raise? You know, our, our comprehensive proposal is covers a whole bunch of areas. It does include wages and benefits because wages and benefits are a critical part of attracting the folks that we need in the healthcare industry and retaining the ones that we have. As I'm sure you know, we're seeing an exodus of healthcare workers and we don't have enough new people coming in to staunch that tide. Here's the statement that Kaiser Permanente gave to CNBC. They said a strike authorization does not reflect a breakdown in bargaining, nor does it mean a strike is imminent or will happen at all. It is a disappointing action considering our progress at the bargaining table. Unfortunately, we've seen coalition leaders attempt to rally members through a strike despite important progress made through negotiations. Um, what what about this is not quite hitting the mark for you? Oh, Kelly, we have been bargaining for months over really critical issues. And while some minimal progress has been made, all of the thorniest issues, including a comprehensive solution to the Kaiser short staffing crisis, are not on the horizon. So we are showing up this weekend. We will be available 24-7 until the moment we walk out on strike to try to reach an agreement because every single frontline healthcare worker wants to be providing care. Would you say that at this point we should expect at least a three-day strike? I would say at this point that we are optimistic but not hopeful that we will be able to avert a strike. And we are trying our best to figure out how we get Kaiser Permanente executives to wake up and listen to the alarm bells that are being sound by frontline healthcare workers. All right, Caroline, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Caroline Lucas. Let's turn to Jared Holtz now to go through what a potential strike could mean for the markets. Jared, welcome to you. And it sounds like, again, maybe this starts as a, as a three-day effort. Unlike with the auto workers, you can't imagine something like this could really drag on. Kelly, thanks for having me. I, I agree. It doesn't sound like this is going to be a major fiasco for um, the company or the stocks in healthcare. You know, we're looking at a, at a three-day strike, potentially, um, I think this is one of the many issues that's impacting the healthcare sector and the medical device space more specifically. Um, but to Caroline's point, I think there's a lot of optimism. Um, obviously, it may not happen, but even if it does, we're looking at a few days. So at, at worst, we're looking at some deferred procedures that will take place over the coming weeks or months. Before talking about medical devices in particular, what would happen if hospitals and maybe some that are not publicly traded or anything like that, but if they had to increase staffing levels to what this union would like to see happen? 
Well, I think that's really a question for, for Kaiser at the end of the day in terms of how many staff um, some of the workers there feel are um, needed to supplement the existing workforce and things of that nature. But I, I doubt it would really impact the ecosystem beyond, you know, the 40 to 50 hospitals that they're operating and a lot of the other um, physician office spaces that they own as well. So it's really much more specified for them and less for the, the broader network. Yeah, it's been uh, just an intense couple of years for the healthcare sector in particular, having to kind of go through COVID coming out of it and then feeling like now they have chronic staffing shortages. So you mentioned uh, medical mm -hmm. devices. Let's talk about why this area in particular could see more fallout. Talk me through that. Well, there, there are so many cross currents taking place in medical devices. We have obviously the, the biggest one has been you know, the impact that these obesity medications could have on the broader space. Um, you know, you and I have talked about it at length before in terms of, you know, what the weight loss medications are going to do to delay or defer a lot of the procedures that are taking place, whether it's cardiovascular, orthopedic, et cetera. The diabetes medical device stocks have gotten hammered. Sleep apnea is another category that has obviously been decimated as the street is kind of thinking that these patients are going to be in much better shape and, and there's going to be less need for some of these devices. We're going to see, um, I don't know, I feel like the, the level of degradation that the stocks have seen from a valuation standpoint has been so extreme that we're kind of anticipating some meaningful downward revisions for revenue. And if we don't get them, then I think, you know, maybe there's going to be a pause in the action and these stocks will actually work. But the narrative is obviously you know, very noisy and significant, and it's been very, very difficult to kind of disprove it. And finally, is there any other fallout to the broader healthcare space that we should think about, whether it's from pressure on expenses through the strike and so forth? I don't really think so. I mean, we're looking at some of the impacts that, you know, some of the suppliers and device companies are going to kind of be held with over the near term. Um, the strike is kind of a, a near term issue and one that has really crept up over the past couple of weeks. And hopefully, you know, that risk subsides sometime this weekend to next week and we can all kind of move forward. But I don't think there's going to be a major issue with respect to insurance companies or providers as a result, at yeah. least not not obviously. Well, I'm very curious if this happens or even if it gets close, if we could really see it spread uh, to other parts of the work, uh, not the workforce, but the healthcare workforce in particular. Jared, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Jared Holtz of Jefferies. Coming up, Carnival is the third best consumer discretionary stock since January, while Nike is in the bottom five. Is either a buy ahead of results with both trading 30% below the average street price target? We'll ask our trader about those two and a bonus name ahead on earnings exchange. And as we head to break, take a look at the sector heat map with nine of the 11 groups in the green. Communication services, the outperformer today, utility and energies in the red. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Pippa Stevens with your CNBC News Update. A new Biden administration rule will cut funding to college programs to leave graduates with unaffordable loans and low pay. The Education Department says the policy is a move towards accountability in the higher education system and will mostly impact for-profit colleges. It will revive a rule established during the Obama administration that was repealed by former President Trump. The union representing Hollywood actors is set to resume negotiations with studios on October 2nd. The decision comes just hours after the Writers Guild strike ended after 150 days. Actors went on strike in mid-July, nearly two months after the writers took to picket lines. Nearly 1,000 applicants are submitting their resumes for a new dream job. USA Today parent Gannett posted two reporting positions covering Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Enthusiastic applicants were required to attach a video cover letter. One hopeful reporter shot hers from a pool, a scene similar to Reese Witherspoon's in Legally Blonde. Kelly, that is definitely a dream assignment for some. (laughs) I can imagine who. Uh, Pippa, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Pippa Stevens. Coming up, 30 million companies in this country are making less than $10 million in revenue. My next guest says they are all underbanked. He'll join us live from Delivering Alpha next with the opportunities he's seeing in the private credit space. And as CNBC celebrates Hispanic heritage, we are sharing the stories of influential Hispanic business leaders. Here is Gold Belly co-founder and chief product officer Vanessa Toravia Ariel. My parents raised me to believe that I can do anything. I came to the U.S., I went to college here. I pursued a lot of different opportunities before launching my company, Gold Belly, successfully. And I just know that this is an American dream for my parents. And it makes me really proud to have been able to deliver that. Welcome back to The Exchange. The boom in private credit has been a decade plus in the making, helped by ultra-low interest rates. According to investment data firm Prequin, the market has nearly tripled in size just since 2015, with the amount of private debt under management topping a trillion dollars last year. But as rates continue to climb, my next guest notes we're starting to see some demand destruction. With me now with more from the Delivering Alpha Conference is Damian Dwin, the founder and CEO of Lafayette Square. Damian, welcome to the program. Kelly, great to see you again. It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, private credit uh, basically has floating rate loans, which might be great for uh, people getting uh, 8 or 10% yields right now. But what about all the companies that now have to pay that? Is that sustainable? Look, there's been demand destruction. So, of course, if you have to borrow at 10% when a year ago you were borrowing at 5%, there's sticker shock. Uh, and this is going to play out over a couple of years because we're all in agreement. Fed's going to be higher for longer. Uh, so good companies are hurting, and we're seeing particularly for smaller businesses, they're running out of options. Uh, the banks are not there for them the way they used to be. Uh, Wall Street, of course, is focused on big private equity controlled businesses. So yes, of course, we're seeing some demand destruction as a result of higher rates. You know, the Wall Street Journal shined a light on that this week, talking about how rising loan costs are hurting riskier companies. And as mentioned, you're looking at the 30 million companies under $10 million in revenue. I mean. These are our micro of the micro caps uh, with debt loads exposed to high rates uh, and a, a, a maybe a more difficult economy in the next six or 12 months. Well, it's interesting. This is sort of a pyramid, Kelly. If you think about it, you have 
30 million companies with less than 10 million of revenue, but then 240,000 companies with revenue of 10 million to a billion dollars. So the question becomes, who's capable of banking both segments? That is, checks of five million all the way up to 100 million or 200 million dollars for these businesses. Uh, there's been a huge sucking sound where private equity controlled companies uh, with bigger EBITDA get a lot of attention from uh, traditional private credit. And obviously banks have been going in that same direction. Uh, but now we have, as you point out, the employers of 50, 75 million Americans in this bucket of 30 million companies with less than 10 million of revenue and the 240,000 companies with revenue less than a billion. We need a, a new solution to finance those companies. Right. And I'm excited to say I think that this is a pro-American conversation. It's a big tank conversation. It's in everyone's interest to figure out how to get capital when you're talking about 50, 60, 70 million Americans employed by these businesses. And normally the business cycle does that for you. You know, by the end of the cycle, you're extending credit to all sorts of companies you might not have been previously. When it starts to turn, though, and that feels where we are, that credit starts to dry right. up. So it'll be a more difficult slog for the next couple of years, I, I would imagine. Can your firm, can the private credit industry, you know, if these were coming from the traditional bank sector, at some point you might talk about refinancing, especially if rates uh, at some point start to drop a little bit. Is there any solution you can offer to take some of the pressure off of these indebted uh, companies? Well, I think there is, and it's counterintuitive. Do the right thing. If, if you think about centering businesses that are outside of the coast, you know, today the private credit industry finances basically five states. More than half of the capital in private credit goes to just five states, Kelly. And so you have 45 states that are not getting the attention they deserve. If you segmented it by zip code, you'd find that 80% of capital actually flows to high-income places. So there is a tremendous opportunity to finance good, growing businesses that need the capital. And, and this is where values come into play. If you do the right thing, I actually believe the capital markets will give you a lower cost of capital and longer duration capital either through programs like the SBA's Small Business Investment Company program, or even what you're seeing in the structured products world with uh, step downs for firms that sink capital to communities that need it. If you do the right thing, I think you can actually get the money and help businesses using conservative structures. Uh, we don't have to bet on software as a service. We can bet on manufacturing businesses, uh, restaurants. There are so many great industries employing millions and millions of Americans. Right. They need the capital. Uh, and they need steady, reliable partners. And this point about demand destruction on the asset side of the balance sheet, I just want to clarify, if you think about it from the liability side of the balance sheet, you've got floating rate debt on that side too. It's harder to raise capital as a private credit shop, just as it is harder to find companies that are willing to borrow at these higher rates. And this is why we got to center creating jobs, focusing on businesses headquartered outside of just the coast. Yeah, no, I think that People have to get more creative, look at other parts of the market, look at how to win market share, maybe be in some underpenetrated yes. areas uh, to take advantage of, yes. of those remaining opportunities. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it, Damien. Thanks, Kelly. Damien Dwin joining us from Lafayette Square. 
Coming up, the shares of the big three automakers rising today. The UAW strike in its 13th day, though, and it currently involves a little more than 12 percent of members. They are poised to expand their strike locations tomorrow if no further negotiation progress has been made. And now both sides are blaming each other for incidents against striking workers, including one instance where a vehicle hit five picketers in Flint, Michigan. UAW President Sean Fain saying GM and Stellantis are enabling violence, while Stellantis said in a statement that Fain needs to tone down his rhetoric as the companies are, quote, not the enemy. Shares of all of them are mixed since the strike began. Ford flat, GM down more than a percent, Stellantis hanging on to a 2% gain. We'll get a check on more of today's big movers next. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets hanging on to some green today. Dow's off the high when it was up 228, but it's also off the negative uh, numbers we saw a little bit earlier. S&P's up half a percent, just under 4,300, and the Nasdaq uh, up about eight tenths of one percent. So, by the way, are the Russell small caps today. Want to mention shares of Kenview as well. Uh, that spinoff from J and J that IPO'd lately, hitting a new all-time low and threatening to break below $20 a share uh, by two cents. It's above that level. It priced at 22 a share back in May. And here's a look at some of the other recent IPOs, all actually moving higher today. Arm priced at 51. It's trading at 54. Instacart still a hair. uh, Earlier it was below. Right now it's back above that $30 IPO price. And Clavio above that level as well right now. Still to come after a quick break, short interest in Carnival is clocking in at around 11% right now. Makes it the most of the big three cruise lines. And near-term options imply a 6% move in Nike on its earnings after the bell. We'll preview results from both names and get a trade on the meme stock reporting as well. That's next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back to the exchange. Couple of big earnings reports on tap, and we've got the trades ahead of those prints. We're looking at kicks and ships, sports and ports. We're talking Nike and Carnival in today's earnings exchange. And here with our trade is Delano Sapporo, New Street Advisors founder and CEO. Delano, welcome back. Thank you, Kelly. Let's start with Nike. It reports after the bell. We've been waiting for it all week. These past two years have actually been the worst two for the stock since 1997, down nearly 40 percent altogether. Goldman saying Foot Locker's report is bad news for demand. Direct to consumer may not be better because brand momentum has been softening against the likes of An and Hoka. Uh, They say China, a similar picture after a strong Q4 macro uncertainty and competition in a key market for them. All of that said, what would you do with the stock here? Yeah, those are those are things that are obviously headwinds for for the stock. Um, I, I still like the stock, and I would be buying here. Uh, there's a few reasons why. I do think direct consumer has its challenges, but that area is strengthening, and that's a strategy that Nike is looking to obviously move into more. Um, if you look at their their most recent report, 15% year over year jump in revenues on the direct and consumer as opposed to um, their wholesale side of the business. So you know, even the shares trading down um, quite a bit year to date as opposed to you know what the S and P uh, 500 is doing. Um, that also is an opportunity, I think, for investors. If you think long term, you believe we'll have a little bit of softness in demand in the near term, but long term, that will that will kind of span out, um, and the company will continue to grow revenues. Um, I think that's a good trade here for for investors, as, as well as the fact that they're uh, doing well on the dividend yield side at about 1.52 percent annual dividend yield. All right, sticking with it. Uh, ju- I'm not I'm not going to make a just do it pun. Uh, we'll just move right along to Carnival, the cruise ship operator, tracking for its best year. 
believe it or not, its best year since 1998. Despite having double-digit losses in August and September, UBS giving a bullish preview, saying comments on volume have been extraordinary, extraordinarily positive and rising fuel costs have been priced in. But critics warn that cruise lines are among the worst performers in times of high oil prices. What do you do with this one, Delano? Yeah, not only, you know, some of the worst performers in, in those times, but if you look at, you know, just, you know, the, the cruise line stocks, they've done well so far this year. But if you look at um, Carnival, it's actually been unimpressive over the long term. Um, and so I think those are the, one of the reasons why if you've been in the trade, you know, maybe from, since the beginning of the year, it's going to get choppy ahead, but you could potentially hold on. There has been pent up demand for travel, for leisure, for discretionary um, since the beginning of the year. But that may really, really soften now as, as we look at either the consumer getting weaker or inflation coming down, one of those two things has to happen. So, so this is a trade I would hold if someone has a good entry point and is looking to maybe withstand the volatility. But, you know, it could be a profit-taking time for, for Carnival. All right. 80 percent uh, up year to date still, which is pretty remarkable. Pretty high short interest as well. And Carnival CEO Josh Weinstein will be on Squawk on the Street tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, to discuss and react to those results. Now, before we go, can we quickly ask about, is it still a meme stock, BlackBerry? Well, so they, they pre-announced earlier this month by the way, um, they disappointed on some cybersecurity and tech revenues. The shares are down since then by about 14 percent. Um, anything to watch for here? No, I, I think the meme rally uh, has kind of died over 2022. Um, it could, you know, I, this is one that's, you know, I think they have some struggles, as you mentioned, you know, the, the revenue on the, on the revenue side, the sales cycles, some of those things on their their with their partnerships, obviously with automakers, probably going to be prolonged with what's going on in that area. But the shifting of the business they've done over the obviously over the past few years is is, is a tough thing to do. Um, so I'd like to see it play out um, and probably be sitting on the sidelines waiting for more of that to play out before I would jump into the stock. All right. Let me broaden out then for a second, because you mentioned some concerns kind of about the economy, the markets. So what does that when you see, for instance, bond yields doing what they are doing? I mean, any temptation here to say, you know, why play around with any of these names? I'm just going to not T-bill and chill. Maybe we're past that. It's like long bond and I don't know, dream on or something. <laughs> Um, are you enticed by by those offerings and what could be a softening backdrop? Yes, really, it's it's for me barbell strategy in the sense that we're looking at both sides. It could be T-bill and chill. You could looking at um, you know the short term or even long term, and whether it's bonds or treasuries because you're getting strong yield there. Uh, but then, of course, you know. If we see even much more of a correction when it comes to growth, when it comes to tech, which I anticipate we potentially will see, um, for those people that have been T-bill and chill, they can take some of that cash and take opportunities. But I would wait on the on the other side of the barbell, on the growth side, for a little bit um, until there's a little bit more of that that potential pullback. Uh, but but that's probably the best strategy right now for investors if you're looking at the interest rate environment, if you're looking at where yields are, if you're looking at what potentially would have to happen to the consumer um, to potentially alter alter inflation. So that's kind of the strategy that I, I'm, I'm keen in on. All right. Delano, as always, thanks for your time. We appreciate it today. Thank you, Kelly. Delano Sapporo with New Street Advisors. That does it for earnings exchange. That does it for the exchange period. For more analysis on markets and the economy, you can sign up for my newsletter over at cnbc.com slash newsletters or by scanning that QR code on your screen. Next on Power Lunch, the next stop on our powerhouse road trip. We're heading to the scene of Breaking Bad. That's your hint. Dom is getting ready. He's in for Tyler, who's very busy with delivering Alpha today. I will join you on the other side of this break, Dom. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 